0: All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is solid sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice. Then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of, what, of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone and everything, I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the the word word of our God stands stands forever.
1: So uh, in his essay, and you can find this essay in uh, his collection of essays called God in the Dock." C.S. Lewis uh, writes this essay called First and Second Things. This is an extended quote, so I'm going to read it. Just listen along. But he writes this He says, The woman who makes a dog the center of her life loses, in the end, not only her human usefulness and dignity, but even the proper pleasure of dog keeping. And I would even add, especially doodles. That was a joke. The man who makes alcohol his chief good good, loses not only his job, but his palate and all power of enjoying the earlier and only pleasurable levels of intoxication. It is a glorious thing to feel for a moment or two that the whole meaning of the universe is summed up in one woman, glorious so long as other duties and pleasures keep tearing you away from her. But clear the decks and so arrange your life that you will have nothing to do but contemplate her And what happens? Of course, this law has been discovered before, but it will stand rediscovery. It may be stated as follows. Every preference of a small good to a great or partial good to a total good involves the loss of the small or partial good for which the sacrifice is made. You can't get second things by putting them first. You get second things only by putting first things first. Now, I read that quote because herein lies the problem sort of in the modern day, in modern day Christianity in the church is that we have a tendency to put everything else before the gospel. Our first thing, which is supposed to be our first thing. I was over at Kroger right before the service started and um, ran into a friend of mine <clears throat> who immediately asked, asked for prayer and we were talking about some you know doctor visits that, he, that he's had. Um, you know, was asking for prayer. I I, I think he's a believer, Um, but he was with his kids, who I know as well, and he's like, yeah, we're headed to a baseball game, and I think my son's going to hit a home run today. You know, so I was like, okay. Um, But that's someone who is putting second things first. Baseball, family time. So we put other ideas and philosophies and practice first as well. Like we have, we put our desire for social justice first. That's a biggie. We put our political interests first. If you don't believe me, just wait just a few more months. We're almost in 2024. We put our preferences first. What do I like? Who are the people that I like to be around? We put ourselves first we want our me time we want our we want our uh, to to be by ourselves we want our we want to be fulfilled we want to be happy and so what ends up happening even with some of these things that are good is that we put what is the ultimate good second and when that happens uh, the, the ultimate good is simply placed on a shelf only to be used when needed so in my study at home I have a lot of books And for the most part, my books are somewhat organized. So if you've ever been in my study, you know that. But they're somewhat organized by category. So I have Old Testament and New Testament commentaries. I have uh, books on theology and church history and worship and uh, social sciences, uh, poetry, fiction, cultural analysis. I have books on sin. I have books on God. I have books on the Trinity. I have books on the Holy Spirit. And I have books on Jesus specifically. So what this looks like in life, using my library as an example, is that we have Jesus up on a shelf with every other subject. And the only time that we pull him down from the shelf is when we feel like we need him or want him. So for some of you this morning, you pulled Jesus off the shelf to come to this worship gathering. You said, I need my my Jesus to come, let me put him in my pocket, and then... On we go maybe you pull them off the shelf when you are at your city group during the week or when you're with Christian friends doing Christian things but as soon as all of those things are over and you walk out these doors or you leave those friends you put Jesus back up on that shelf only to take him down maybe next week again at the same time 1st John chapter 2 verses 15 through 17 Uh, describes secondary things for us and its implications. So John says this, "'Do not love the world or the things in the world. "'If anyone loves the world, "'the love of the Father is not in him. "'For all that is in the world, "'the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes "'and pride of life is not from the Father, "'but is from the world. "'And the world is passing away along with its desires. "'But whoever does the will of God abides forever.'" So in our text today, Paul is continuing to steer his readers, these dear brothers and sisters in Christ, these these brothers and sisters in Christ that he loves so much. And he's trying to steer them away from continuing to make the mistake of putting preferences, and specifically idols, before the ultimate thing, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. So I want us to work through this in three ways, by seeing three things. One is our divided devotion. Second is our covenant devotion. And then third is what our true devotion is supposed to be. So divided devotion, covenant devotion, and then true devotion. So divided devotion. Look at verse 14. Very short verse. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, therefore, people that I love, flee from idolatry. So here, Paul, in verse 14, Paul goes back to his first command that we looked at last week um, in verse 7 when he says, do not be idolaters. Simply don't worship other gods. Don't put other gods before the one true God. And now in verse 14, he's even more urgent to say, as the church Father Chrysostom uh, paraphrased it, be rid of this sin with all speed. Because to linger any longer in it will be your downfall. So Paul has already given this very real and vivid example of of Israel when they fashioned and worshipped a golden calf instead of the God of Israel. If you remember Aaron the priest's words, Moses' brother, who says, "Uh, here is your God. Here is your God who led you out of the land of Egypt. And they worshipped. And it's because they wanted, to, they wanted a, a God they could see and touch. And so because they wanted this God they could see and touch, they end up worshiping the created, a golden calf, rather than the creator. So it's something for you to be aware of in your own heart, to be rid of your idolatry, to be rid of your sin with all speed. Because I think some of you like to linger in your sin and idolatry because, let's just be honest, you like it so much. It, it, it brings you pleasure. It brings you some sort of comfort. It brings you some sort of um, escape from the world. And so you say, I'm not going to be rid of this. This is too helpful. I'll just do it one more time, and then I'll be done with it. Maybe that's your attitude. Then that never happens. But you have to remember, our, our heart's default, as John Calvin said, is to churn out idols one after another. And not only do we churn them out, we protect them as well, don't we? Don't touch my idols. Because to be an idolater is to, is to not be a God of the Bible worshiper. Because this is what happens when you're an idolater. You, you exchange glory when you do this. Just like we we sang praises to the glory of God earlier. Because that's what worship is. You are giving someone or something glory. Some of you did this yesterday watching college football. You gave a team glory. So Paul describes it in this way in Romans chapter 1. Very familiar passage. But he says, claiming to be wise... They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So here are these people that Paul is writing to in the book of Romans. They're, they're claiming to be wise. They're claiming to, to, to know what they are doing. And so they think that worshiping created things is wisdom. But what's happening When you worship the created things They end up becoming the ultimate thing And when this takes place They end up becoming our our functional masters That they're idols in our hearts at this point So they're controlling us Controlling how we make decisions Controlling how we think How we speak to and treat one another Controlling uh, how we spend our money how How we spend our time the people that we hang around with. As one commentator put it, he said, Stephen Um, he says, idolatry is the shaping power that is underneath human impulses, human behavior, and the motivational cause for why there is any desire to do anything. Because to have idols, to have idols in your life causes a divided devotion in your heart. And tragically, idolatry leads to you sort of leading this double life. You have this one life that you live here and amongst God's people and everybody thinks a certain way about you, but then you have this whole other life that you're living as you worship these idols that you've created in your heart. And so the tragedy of this is is to put Second or third thing's first, you end up eventually losing the first thing, which is Christ. So the danger for the Corinthians is this first thing for them also is Jesus Christ crucified. This is why Paul keeps coming back to the cross. This is why he keeps coming back to the body and blood of Jesus. Because he wants them to understand what they are losing. Because their deepest desire, at least at this point, that Paul is writing to them, was to find a way to serve Christ. They had this desire, we want to serve Christ. He's changed us, we know that. But also, at the very same time, to be acceptable in the public square of Corinthian life. So essentially, they wanted to to have their cake and eat it too, as the old saying goes. And Paul is taking this opportunity throughout his letter to call them back to their first love. So I have to ask you the question. What are you putting before Christ crucified? We did that exercise last week, fill in the blank. Um, If I can only have blank, then I would be satisfied. Then I would be happy. Then I would be complete. And whatever that is, that is what you have put before Christ crucified. And remember, these things can be good, right? That's the danger Um, The other other danger is that idolatry is not a choice between two gods, as some of us probably believe. Because you say, well, I'm here, I'm worshiping the one true God, we're reading scripture together, I'm listening to preaching, we're gonna share the communion table, we're gonna do all of these things, I'm worshiping the one true God. But actually, idolatry is not a choice between two gods. It's the attempt to serve multiple gods at the same time. And this is known as syncretism. So this is why we have this problem, particularly in the the American South. Um, And it's probably taking place around the country as well. Um, But this is my context. This is where I grew up. But this is why you could walk up to pretty much anybody on the street, and it's getting less and less, but pretty much anybody on the street in the American South and say, are you a Christian? And they would say, yes. And you would go, "I I don't think you are because of this, this, and this. But it's syncretism. They, are, they, are, they, they have Jesus. They are going to church on Sunday. They're doing their Christian duty. They're taking Jesus off the shelf at appropriate times. But they're also worshiping these other idols of family and work and money and success. So we're trying to pull good from all these other religious practices, all these other ide- ideologies, and, and Christianity is just one of them, of many. And then we end up like Oprah creating our own belief system. So one commentator said, idolatry is the air we breathe, and it's rarely explicit. Most people don't know what's happening because they're not saying, I want this instead of Christ. They're saying, I want Christ plus this. That's the equation. They're not saying, I'm going to get rid of Christ. They're saying, I'm going to keep Christ, but I want to figure out a way I can have Christ and also have this as well. So the exercise you need to engage in to get at the idols of your heart is to take a step back and consider the way that your desires shape your life. And then you'll begin to see what those idols are. So one way to do this is to examine uh, what sort of personal liturgy do you have. So we have a liturgy that we walk through here at CTK. Um, We use what's called the five C's. I don't know if you knew that or not about our church, but it's, it's on our website. So if you didn't know, it's there. These are the five C's, that God calls us to worship, that God cleanses us during worship, God consecrates us, God communes with us, and God commissions us, he sends us out. So a good exercise for you is to take those five C's, it's kind of like an outline for your Christian life during the week, and then kind of go through and ask yourself some questions. What or who calls you to work into school, into your marriage on Monday morning? What or who cleanses you of your failures and shortcomings during the week? What or who do you run to when those things happen? What or who consecrates you? What teachings do you live by moment by moment? And we live in a podcast world. I have more people quote Joe Rogan to me than any other person sometimes what or who do you commune with what, what nourishes you throughout the week is it the excitement of something you've ordered coming in the mail I'm guilty of that is it that vacation that you're looking forward to is it that person that you like to see in the office and then what or who commissions you to go out and live in this world with all of its brokenness And let's just be honest, for some of you, that is Fox News or CNN. And that's what's sending you out into the broken world. So, a large part of this, when you work your way through those particular things, a large part of this involves understanding where you are in the story of God. Because you're in that story right now as we sit here. Because if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian truly, then you are in a covenant relationship with the one true God. Just like in a marriage, you are in a you're in a cov- you have made a covenant with the one true God. He's not just to be one among many, he is to be the only. Which is why we must have a covenant devotion to him alone, which is our second point. So in verse 15, Paul appeals to sensible people. So, in other words, Paul is, Paul is he's he's saying that. Thinking people, which is what he means by sensible people, thinking people should pay careful attention to what he's saying and judge it carefully for themselves. So this is one of my biggest pet peeves, is when someone wants to talk, i.e. argue with me, over something, but they haven't given it any careful thought. They just have an opinion, and they just run with the opinion. Just go on Facebook this afternoon, and you'll see that happening all the time. But on the flip side, those who give have given something careful thought, even if I disagree with them, those are the best debates, those are the best arguments. So Paul is saying, give this careful thought before considering anything else. And then he launches into what he wants them to give careful thought about. And so what he does, he he does this by using the covenant meal, the Lord's Supper. Look at verses 15 through 17. Paul says, I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So the Lord's Supper it's something that Paul writes more extensively about in chapter 11 when he's talking more about worship and, and things that, of that nature, and we'll look at that in more depth in, in a couple of weeks. But for now, he appeals to this meal, because it is something they're currently practicing. He appeals to this meal as a way to teach the Corinthians right devotion to the right thing, which is the body and blood of Christ. He's calling them back to it. So instead of trying to find satisfaction in idols, you should instead turn to Christ and find true satisfaction. And the Lord's Supper reminds you in the physical realities of of the bread and the wine what, what Christ truly does for us at this table. Because at this table, he feeds you and he nourishes you in a way that only he can. He satisfies your deepest longings and desires. And not only that, when you feed on Christ in this way, you not only show your vertical connection with God, because you're bearing witness. When you come to this table this afternoon, you're bearing witness to your own personal relationship with God through Christ. That's why we warn and tell those who are not believers to come to the table. This is not a table for unbelievers. You, You don't profess that. And if you do come to the table, you're lying. So we warn you about that. But for the Christian, this is a covenant renewal. You're again saying, I believe in what God has done for me in Christ. So not only does that take place, but it is also a, a, uh, to show your vertical connection um, or your horizontal relationship with one another. Because you don't come to the table alone. This is why I don't do... Um, Communion at weddings. Because you, you, you never come to the table alone. You always come with the body, with the family. And that's how we practice it here. And so you're renewing your covenant relationship with God, but you're also renewing that covenant relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is what Paul is saying here. You're one with Christ, but you're also one with each other. And every time we partake of this meal, we are renewing that covenant that has been sealed for us by Christ's broken body and poured out blood. It's the way you escape idolatry. Because the way of escape that Paul refers to back in verse 13 is not just you trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and trying to just kind of get enough energy and devotion to say, I'm going to quit that sin, I'm going to do this, that, or the other. Christ is your way of escape every time, nothing else. It's why the psalmist says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. You can't say that about any other idol in your life. Because they're not good. And you know it. And for this reason, the supper gets sets God's people apart from all other pagan sacrifices or rituals. Um, you see, we don't, we don't need Christ. Plus, all we need is Christ. Look at verse 21 through 22. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So going back to our overarching theme, which is living as a unified body in a fractured world, um, because the, the practice of the Lord's Supper in the, in the eyes of the everyday pagan in Corinth and even in Augusta, Georgia, in America, wherever, was considered the strangest characteristic of Christianity that there was. Christians were accused of cannibalism um, when, when, when outsiders heard about it and they're eating, they're eating somebody's body, they're drinking somebody's blood. Like, What is happening in there? This, these kind of cultic practices. It was strange. It was also strange because it was exclusive. To partake of the Lord's table was not to partake in the table of demons, as Paul puts it. This is an echo for the, for the Christian of Jesus' words back in the Gospels when he says in Luke 16 13, no servant can serve two masters. For he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And Jesus says, you you cannot serve God and money. You can't serve the one true God and the idol of money, is what Jesus is saying. Why? Why can't I do that? Because eventually one of those will lose out. You can't do it. So Paul is saying with his use of the word cup here, is you cannot say you're in covenant with the Lord, because that's what the cup means. It's a covenant that we're making with the Lord. You cannot say you're in covenant with the Lord and at the very same time, be in covenant with demons. One of them will give. One of them will weaken. One of them will consume you. Which one will it be? And so this covenant devotion brought on by the Lord's table leads us... Away from this divided devotion that's happening within our heart to to idols and to Jesus at the same time, to a singular devotion to Christ alone for God's glory alone. Look at verses 23 through 33. Paul says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. If I partake partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. So since chapter eight, Paul has been talking about meat sacrificed to idols. And we might just think, man, get over it, Paul. But this is this is the culture in which they are. This is this is something that was coming up over and over again. Much like how 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 drinking alcohol or or whatever whatever advice there is that we like to argue about as Christians. Should we do it? Should we not do it? All those things that come up. And he was giving the the Corinthians instructions about how to navigate whether or not to eat the meat or not eat the meat. And so Paul says in in chapter 8, verse 8, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Because on one side, you had some who were more kind of licentious in their view. They said... I am free in Christ, so I can, I can and will eat meat. Um, and those who aren't comfortable with this, well, they just haven't attained my level of spirituality. They're weak. And those we would call the elitist in Paul's day. They felt like they were on a different kind of uh, level than all other Christians in that city. On the other side, you had those who were more legalistic in their view. So they would say, I will never eat this meat because it has been sacrificed to idols. And if anyone else eats this meat, then they're not as mature spiritually as I am. I have reached this level that they have not, to where I can see that this meat is evil. And whoever, whoever eats of it is evil as well. So in verse 23, Paul goes back to the original statement the Corinthians made in chapter 6, verse 12. So this was a a saying that was happening amongst the Corinthian church. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. So to say, look, yes, you have freedom in Christ, yet at the same time, in your freedom, you are to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ, which could mean, which could mean not partaking of meat sacrificed to idols in certain situations. So what will it mean for your neighbor when and if you do this? So this is a hard question because as Americans, we like our rights. We like our freedoms. I mean, we went to war over this. Men died for our rights and freedoms. So to be told, you must give up your rights. Disregard your freedoms for the sake of your neighbor is a hard pill to swallow at times depending on what rights and freedoms we're talking about here, right? Paul already demonstrated what he was giving up for the sake of the Corinthians, uh, knowing Christ. This was Paul. He, he was giving up meat. If, if, if this causes a brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, Paul says. He gives up his financial rights. He gives up his comfort and security and preference. But here, for the Corinthians... It was this practice of eating meat sacrificed to idols. And you have to know what kind of choice Paul was asking them to make. This this in first century the the, the restaurants during that time, there wasn't really formal restaurants, but that's just for our vernacular, you know, reasons. The restaurants in that time were the temples. That's where that's where you went to eat. The the shops, the markets, the grocery stores of that day, the meat that came to those shops and markets was the meat that came out of these temples. So this this was a tough decision that Paul was calling the Corinthians make. This was a lot of discernment that they had to make day in and day out for the sake of their brothers and sisters in Christ and ultimately for the sake of the gospel. This was everywhere. They couldn't get away from it. Christians were... Christians weren't sacrificing meat. There wasn't Christian meat. There wasn't like a Christian meat market that they could go to. They had to discern every single day. So what Paul is not saying is that you can never eat meat that is sacrificed to idols. He's not saying that. Christians can eat food previously sacrificed to an idol sold in the market and when invited to dinner in someone's home, they can do all of that. The point Paul is getting at here. Which is driven by true devotion to Christ is that the good of other Christians and the glory of God must be preeminent in those decisions. Not your personal freedoms, not your personal convictions, but for the good of your neighbor and for the glory of God. So our our goal then as Christians is always to do that which builds up and brings God glory. Look at verses thirty-one through thirty three. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. What a goal to have. What a way in which to live your own life. To live for the good of your neighbor and the glory of God in every moment is what Paul has been getting at since chapter 8. So how does this happen? So there's a um, Scottish Presbyterian minister from the 19th century named Thomas Chalmers, and he read a little treatise titled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Some of you may have read it before, but explosive means that word expulsive means to drive out. So the expulsive power of a new affection. So what Chalmers meant was that in order for other affections to be loosed in your life, other idols, to be driven out. A more powerful affection was needed. He writes this. The love of the world cannot be expunged by a mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness. So you can't just say, oh, that's bad, that's not good, that's not enough to drive out sin, to drive out idols. The love of the world cannot be expunged by a mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness, but may it not be supplanted by the love of that which is more worthy than itself. He goes on, but but what cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed, and one taste may be made to give way to another and to lose its power entirely as the reigning affection of the mind, to which Paul gives testimony to in chapter 11, verse 1, when he says, Corinthians, be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. So what is this expulsive power? It's not Paul. It's not you. It's Christ. By saying this, Paul isn't saying, look, look at how good I am. Look at what I've accomplished. Look at all that I've gone through. I saw Jesus appear to me on, on, on the road when he saved me. I've seen him. Paul. Paul isn't saying, hey, look at me because of all of these great things. Paul is saying, look to me as I look to Christ because that's the expulsive power. He is the only one worth imitating because he's the only one who satisfies completely. He's the only one who, who loved his neighbors perfectly. He's, he's the only one who gave up his rights and freedoms perfectly and fully for you and for me. And he's the only one who glorifies God perfectly. And this reality allows us to live a life of freedom where we put the first thing first and are free to love our neighbors and to glorify God in everything that we're called to. Amen. I want us to do a little exercise and just to take a moment of, we've done this before,